People aren't gonna like this. They're gonna do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse and they'll, they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow and they'll say, the Negro lost his temper. Your enemy will be out in force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win with hitting, running, fielding, only that. We win if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great baseball player. You want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? No. No. I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. Mmm. Yeah. That was out of the movie 42, uh, the story of Jackie Robinson, the very first African-American to step into the world of baseball here in our country. And that occurred during a time in our nation where the reality of the war uh, of racism was being waged, not underground, not in the subtle corners, but right up front and unapologetically. It was a terrible time in our history, and Jackie Robinson was one of the great men that had to step forward into that fight and, and fight on a, on a playing field where he would have to take on the weight of that. And in that beautiful speech in the movie, uh, there is this moment where uh, this guy guy saying, listen, uh, this is what's going to come your way. And, and even for us, I mean, the first time I saw that movie and every time I've watched that scene since, when he says, you know, they're going to say the, the Negro this and that, I want to get up. Like, I want to get up and punch someone, don't you? I want to get up and find someone to hit him and go, don't you ever do that. Don't you ever say that. And, and, and you feel what must have been stirring in him. It's just this deep sense of like, well, hold on, are you saying that you want some weak guy who has to step into this war and not fight for himself? And I love the moment where this great perspective is given by the manager who says, no, I just, I want a guy that's not gonna fight for himself, but he's gonna fight for the greater war that's out there. We, we're not fighting for you, Jackie Robinson. We're fighting for everyone that you represent. And when you fight for everyone, then that sometimes, in fact, most often means that you don't fight what's right in front of you. You fight the war that you know is in the invisible spaces. See, our tendency as human beings across the board is to fight what's right in front of us, right? Whatever's coming right at us, we fight that. We jump in. If it's, if it's, if it's in front of us, it's oppressing us. It's taking from us what is ours. It is robbing us of our rights. It is, it is an obstacle to our dreams. Whatever it may be, we fight it because it's in our way and because it's taking from us what we want, and hear this grand call to say, we have so little vision for the greater war. Let us step into a bigger picture, Jackie Robinson. Let us, let us be a greater man than you are describing. In the time of Christ, before and during his time on this planet, the people that were known as the people of God, the Jewish people, uh, were waiting on a Messiah. 
They were waiting on a rescuer who would come sent from God to rescue them from the oppression under which they lived. And the oppression under which they lived was very real. It was right in front of them. It had been a number of huge empires that had occupied their land and the latest version of those empires was the Roman Empire. In the time of Christ, they are under Roman occupation and so the Messiah who's going to come is gonna be sent of God to overthrow the nation that is occupying the people of God and then from that time forward will reign on the throne of David and forever and ever on planet earth the Jewish people would live in peace under God's protection, in peace from the oppression of a nation that is holding them down. This was their great hope. And the Jewish people in the time after Jesus had died and rose from the dead uh, had been hopeful that Jesus was one of these messiahs. Jesus came on the scene, seemed to gain a great following, seemed to have an attitude that would speak against whoever he needed to, seemed to have that kind of thing in him that would go to Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government and they were hopeful and then you know what happened, right? Jesus didn't overthrow the Roman government. In fact, the Roman government crucified Jesus. Uh, the, the, the corrupt Jewish leadership crucified Jesus. And, and so what ends up happening is the, that hopeful sense of a fighting Messiah who would come and conquer the nation over us diminished and disappeared. We are traveling through the book of Acts in the story of the early New Testament church, and we're traveling specifically with a guy named Paul. Uh, he's got a friend with him, Silas. Uh, they picked up Timothy in Galatia. They picked up Luke in Troas, right by the Aegean Sea. They're now in Macedonia. And what is Paul doing with uh, Silas and his team? He is traveling around the known world to both Jews and Gentiles to say to them, Jesus, the one you thought was the Messiah, that you then thought was not the Messiah because he died. In fact, he is the Messiah, and I'm going to tell you why. And that's what we're following. We have followed Paul as he's traveled out of uh, the known world of Israel into uh, the, the region of Galatia, traveling into more and more Gentile territory, still kind of significant Jewish influence there until you get to the Aegean Sea. When you cross over the Aegean Sea, you've traveled 400 miles west of Galatia now. Uh, you are sitting in Troas. When you cross over into Macedonia, you cross over into pure Roman territory now, right? Right? Whereas Roman occupation and presence is felt in Israel and in Galatia and in, uh, in, in Asia Minor and, and in Bithynia, those areas, it is truly at its strongest in Macedonia through all the way to Rome. So when you're in Macedonia, you're in Roman territory with Roman cities, Roman colonies, Roman administration, and if you are Jewish there, you are the minority, uh, you are the small piece, and so in that space, you feel perhaps even more significantly than the guys in Jerusalem, that sense of, man, we need a Messiah to overthrow these people and fight on our behalf and conquer the nation before us. Paul and his team find themselves in Philippi in Macedonia. They go through some incredible things there, some miraculous moments with Lydia and the jailer, some difficult moments with the, uh, with the magistrate and administration there. They get put in prison. They get released. They leave Philippi, and we pick up the story as they now travel through Macedonia on their journey, and let's see uh, how and who and where they encounter people and what unfolds with that. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 17. If you brought a smart device or your Bible, turn to Acts 17. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide. We are on page 602. 602, turn to page 602, Acts chapter 17. We're going to jump in. Verse 1 is where we begin. 
So verse 1 of Acts chapter 17, here's what it says. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. There's the first opening sentence. So immediately we find out about the journey. They are heading from uh, Philippi. They're taking the main road to Thessalonica and they're crossing through two major cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia. Amphipolis and Apollonia are on the road of a hundred mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. So you you're traveling primarily west now, a little bit of a southerly direction. They're going to start turning south after Thessalonica even more. But right now you're heading through and it's about 30 miles from Philippi to Apollonia and then another 30 miles or so from Apollonia to, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, from Amphipolis to Apollonia. And then from Apollonia to Thessalonica, about another 30, 35 miles. So if you're traveling by horse, which could have very possibly been Paul and the folks, especially considering that the guys in Philippi asked them very nicely to leave quickly because they were super embarrassed, right? So they may have just said to them, here's some horses, just go. Then it would have been a day's travel from Philippi to Apollonia. They would have rested for the night, another day's travel to, uh, um, I mean, I'm sorry, Amphipolis, and then a day's travel to Apollonia, and then another day's travel to Thessalonica. So it would have been obvious for Luke to say as he wrote, because he was traveling with them, hey, we went here, we rested for the night, we went here, we rested for the night, and then we ended up in Thessalonica. Now, if they were working by foot, which is also very possible, it would have been a couple of days travel on each of those stretches, and they would have rested in these two cities more significantly, perhaps for two or three days, because they've just traveled for three days on foot, four days on foot. Now they're resting, getting supplies, and moving on for the next part of the journey. It is interesting to me, though, that they did not stop in either of these cities, because they are both significant cities on the journey through Macedonia. We don't know why they didn't stop, but we can surmise about two possibilities, and likely it was one of these two possibilities. Either there was really no Jewish presence in either of these cities, which is very possible, because remember in Philippi there was no Jewish synagogue. There was also no real Jewish presence. They found a bunch of women in a prayer meeting a mile and a half outside the city. That was their Jewish presence. And Paul has a very particular strategy in bringing the gospel to bear in a space. He finds the Jewish people he shares the gospel with them. Why? Because they have the rich history of the Old Testament that was the, fore, uh, the, the, the forefront foreknowledge of what was to come. And so really convincing a Jewish person of the reality of the Messiah of Jesus would have made sense because they already have the history. A, a Gentile would, would have had zero history, starting at minus 10. So if Paul had a Jewish audience, or at least Gentiles that understood the Jewish world because they'd served the God of the Jews, then he has a starting point for them to gain the, 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 uh, the knowledge to share with the other Gentiles. But in these two cities, there was apparently no Jewish presence because they didn't stop there at all. It's also possible that there may have been a Jewish presence, but that the Spirit of God said to Paul, don't stop here, keep moving on. Why? Because we know Paul's constant ongoing reality is this. He is on mission carrying the gospel into every place he can, and when the Spirit tells him to keep his mouth shut or move on, he does. See, we live in the opposite world, don't we? We sit around and wait, doing very little, until the Spirit actually tells us to do something, and then we think about it, right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that how we roll? So, I mean, certainly how I roll a lot, going to the big bad world out there, and I'm like, oh, Spirit of God, tell me by writing on the wall when you want me to share with my coworkers about you, because it's super embarrassing and crazy, right? And so, Paul really runs the opposite story. He just goes, 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 carrying the gospel, regardless of consequence, and every now and then God says, not now, not here. And, and if we started following suit, that would have a dramatic shaping even in the lives that we get to live and are invited into. 
So Paul ends up in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, we find out there is a Jewish synagogue, even more than Philippi. Why? Thessalonica was the second largest city in Macedonia. It was considered the capital of the Macedonian region and the city of administration. So it is the city that does everything by the book. You with me? This is the, uh, the administrative hub of the entire region of Macedonia. So by the book then, they also need to demonstrate their willingness to have multiple religions play together in the same sandbox, right? So uh, it is, makes sense that they would have allowed for a Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica, not because they love the Jewish people, but because by the book, that's what you do. And so uh, there's a Jewish synagogue there, and we know that in this Jewish synagogue, not only were there Jewish people uh, by blood, but there were also a number of Gentiles that had become Jewish, if you will, meaning that they were followers of the God of the Jews, but they weren't Jewish by blood, and a number of leading women in this particular synagogue. So you see a very progressive synagogue, uh, a very mixed synagogue, would have made a lot of sense in Thessalonica, okay? That's the environment Paul steps into. Let's see what he does in that environment. Take a look. It says this, and Paul went in as was his custom, this is to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So you're already sensing why he's saying that, right? It's making sense, isn't it? Because you know the environment he's walked into. He's walking into a Jewish synagogue with a bunch of Gentiles who thought Jesus might have been the Messiah because they were expecting what? A fighting Messiah who would overthrow the Roman government. And when Jesus suffered and died, they thought he was no longer the Messiah. So what is Paul about to do? It makes sense that Luke is this specific here saying what Paul did in the synagogue is over a three-week period, that's three Sabbaths, right? Over a three-week period, he spent time at the synagogue with the Jews and the Greeks alike, uh, wrestling with them, reasoning with them through the Old Testament, showing them why the Messiah they thought was not the Messiah because he was not a fighting Messiah, was in fact the Messiah because the Messiah we needed was not a fighting Messiah. Messiah, but a suffering Messiah, a dying Messiah, a rising from the dead Messiah. And so Paul is now going to reason his way through. Uh, side note real quick, if you are here and, and you are uh, fairly new on the journey with God or just kind of trying to figure out, should I even buy in or you've bought in for a long time, but you don't know much. Uh, just another reminder that our faith that we have in Jesus was never intended to be a blind faith ever, 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 ever. That is the most dangerous kind of faith where you just believe something because you believe it and someone told you and that's it. People that do that end up doing very dangerous things with their mouths or their actions, right? Our faith is supposed to be a faith we have wrestled with, a faith we have dug into, because our faith has lots of reason by which we believe. I, I always say, our faith is reason gone courageous. It is not just blind faith stepping into a religious experience, okay? We reason about the history and the reality and the authenticity of the Word of God, and then there is a space because God is who he is that we cannot know, but we can know because we have enough reason to know. And so we launch off of reason into faith. We don't launch off of insanity into blindness. You with me? So Paul, I love that when he shows up in a place, he reasons with people. He, he proves things to people. If you're wondering whether the faith in Christ is reality or if it's just a bunch of people that are religious, then dig in 
and let's reason because I'm telling you it's extraordinary what you find. So Paul is reasoning with the synagogue and he reasons for three weeks and what does he reason? He proves to them that Christ in fact had to die, rise from the dead, did do it and here's why. Don't you wish you could have been in that synagogue for those three weeks? Don't you wish you could have sat there under that listening to Paul, the great orator, the the great debater, the the brilliant man that he was, reason his way through the the reality of the gospel? Man, I would give anything to be part of that. Guess what? I got great news for you. See, we do get to be part of those moments with Paul. Here's why. Because God gave us the book of Acts, which is Luke's outward observation of what's happening in Paul's life, where we get these little moments. Paul was in the synagogue. He reasoned to prove this reality. But then we also have the letters that Paul wrote to multiple churches where his inner thoughts were laid down on paper through the Spirit of God, and we get to jump into his inner thoughts and see what he was thinking. And there was, in fact, a letter written to another church, not in Thessalonica, to the church in Rome later on, where Paul spends the majority of the letter reasoning through the gospel to prove that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise from the dead in order to be our Messiah. So here's what we're going to do for a brief moment in this story. We're going to go into the book of Romans. We're going to bounce through that puppy and we're going to pretend just for a moment that we're sitting in Thessalonica in that beautiful synagogue and it is very possible that the very sequence of logic that Paul would have taken writing to the church in Rome is the same sequence of logic that he would have unpacked for the church in Thessalonica, well, not even the church yet, the synagogue in Thessalonica. So we're going to listen in to Paul's mind as he unpacks the reality of the gospel in a reasonable sense to prove why Christ had to suffer and die and pretend that we are not reading the book of Romans, but we are listening in to Paul in the beautiful space of Thessalonica. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 1. It's going to be on page uh, 610, just a few pages further on. It's the very next book in the Bible. Romans chapter 1, if you're using one of your smart devices or own Bible, and if you're using our Bibles, page 610. So we're going to start Romans chapter 1, verse 1, because this is an intro, and I think Paul may have intro just this way in Thessalonica. You can imagine Paul getting up in front of the crowd. He's in the, sanct- in, in the synagogue, first Sabbath week, and this is what he says. Hey folks, my name is Paul. I am a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have been received, uh, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are being called to belong to Jesus Christ. Aren't you inspired? I am. And you're like, yes. Now you may not believe this yet. You may not even be convinced, but you're like, okay, Paul, you have convinced me to listen on, right? I mean, at least I'm going, wow, you've come here to carry the gospel of Jesus. Paul said two important things, that this Jesus meets the criteria of the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to travel there. And the main criteria was he was in the line of David. So according to the flesh, he was in the line of David. They were waiting for a Messiah who would sit on David's throne forever and ever and reign. So he goes, yep, this is that Messiah, but he's more than that through the power of the Holy Spirit he was declared the son of God not just the son of David in the flesh but through the spirit the son of God because he was risen from the dead I'm intrigued are you intrigued I'm intrigued so now Paul begins his journey let's travel through we're going to jump down to chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 18 
Paul begins here. Look, he says this. If you can imagine in the, in the, in the uh, synagogue, here's what he might have said. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Oh, big amens in the, uh, in the uh, uh, synagogue, right? Amen! amen. Why? Because Paul's talking about those folks out there, right? We're in Thessalonica, uh, those, those Gentile crazies who have suppressed the truth of God and God's wrath is against them. I mean, preach it, Paul. I love that story. And thank goodness we have the law. Thank goodness we're good. Thanks, thank goodness we're the people of God, right? And you Greeks that are with us, are well done for making the transition into the doors here because if you were still out there, that's who you are. God's wrath against you, right? So right as we're getting there and Paul's beginning to say, look, we all know that out there in the ungodly behavior that occurs, God's wrath is poured against them and you're thinking, how is God gonna bring the Messiah in to rescue us from them, right? Us from them. And look what Paul does next. Chapter two, verse one. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment one on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. No amens on this one, right? No amens. Now you're scratching your head. Did he just say what I think he just said? Did he just say what I think he just said? You can see some lady leaning over to her husband and going, we need to leave, this guy's crazy, right? So here's that moment where Paul just said, hey folks, God's wrath is poured against the ungodliness of humanity out there, but guess what? We are without excuse too because God's wrath is poured out against the ungodliness that happens in here. We behave correctly. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm gonna get there in a second, right? Paul's, Paul's wrestling with us now and going, in here there is a reality we do not understand. He's moving us toward why we need a suffering Messiah, why we need a dying Messiah, why we need a risen Messiah, okay? Take a look where he takes us now. He gives us the proof right here, uh, chapter two, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see what he's doing? He's equalizing the playing field. We don't have an angry God, we have a just God. We don't have an angry God, we have a righteous God. We don't have an angry God, we have a God that is simply allowing the reality of justice to play out. And what he's saying is this, for those who live out there who do not know the law, do not understand the law, they will perish in their sin because the wrath of God is against them because they have no law and their behaviors are terrible. Those of us in here who are under the law, if you've broken any of the law, you've broken all of the law, you are under judgment by the law and you will perish under the law because the wrath of God will be poured out against you. So they just die for a different reason we die for, right? We are, are under the wrath of God because the law was ours and we couldn't meet the criteria. They are under the wrath of God because they didn't have the law and didn't have a chance to even try to meet the criteria. Not that they would have been able to because we couldn't. Now look what he does. He says this. Just when you're sitting going, I don't like this Sabbath, right? Because now we're all under the same boat. He says this, but listen, guys, but listen. Verse 21 of chapter three. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right, that's what justified means, made right by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the beautiful moment where Paul goes, guys, the Messiah we have came to set us free from a human problem, not a Jewish problem. From a human problem, not an us-them problem. So you have to understand the battle you thought Jesus was going to come and fight, that was not the battle he was coming to fight. He was not trying to come and conquer a nation right in front of you. He was coming for something bigger. We're about to find out what. Take a look. Paul goes on. In chapter 4 of the book of Romans, he discusses the reality of Abraham and says, folks, in our our Old Testament, where we understand the revelation of the realities of the law, uh, God actually had the story written early on. You remember uh, Abraham and Isaac? Abraham was not counted righteous because of anything he did. He was counted righteous because he believed God's work for him. He believed that God would provide a way out. He believed that God would raise the dead. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews actually says, Abraham was willing to plunge the knife through Isaac because he knew if he did, God would just raise him from the dead. See, Abraham's action of stepping in and giving his son up had nothing to do with Abraham being willing to lay down. It was Abraham believing God would rescue. And so what he's saying is this was already the story. Our just, uh, being, being made just and being made righteous is not a consequence of our behavior. It is a consequence of God's work for us and us believing that work. That's why Abraham was made righteous. And look what he says here, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we know this, since we have been justified by faith, that is made right by what we believe, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here's what he's saying. Guys, we're finally at peace because it's not our behaviors that are going to uh, figure out how to justify us before God. We are free because it's not about what we do or don't do, what they do or don't do. It's about what we know about our Messiah and what he has done for us. So we are justified through Christ and therefore at peace with God because he did the work for us. Now look what he does. Now he explains. Now he explains. Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. What's he saying? He's saying this. Guys, let's, let's look back. Through one man and one woman's action, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, when they were created with the ability to choose freely. Remember, God created the human race with the ability to choose freely. We lost that ability when sin came into our lives and we were enslaved by our sin nature. But before that enslaved nature, enslaved our hearts and minds so that we wanted nothing to do with God, we were in perfect freedom like Adam and Eve, or not like, we were in Adam and Eve perfectly free, and Adam and Eve had the ability to choose freely without sin, and they chose their own story, their own divinity to image their own story because they were convinced by the enemy of God that that was a better way to live. 
And by doing that, it says through one man's actions, sin and death came into our human story and it has enslaved us and haunted us ever, ever since. In fact, the very reason we're under occupation is because sin and death reigns in all of us. The very reason we wish we weren't under occupation is because sin and death reigns in all of us. The reason we obsess over the things we have or do not have is because sin and death reigns in all of us. In other words, our problem ain't Rome. Our problem is sin and death. And we know it came through one man and one man's story. And in case you think it was the law that was the solution, there was no law until Moses. And guess what? From Adam to Moses, what reigned? Life and freedom? Because there was no law to tell us that we needed to behave properly? No, death still reigned. So it doesn't matter if there's law, it doesn't matter if there's no law, guess what reigns? Death and sin, why? Because death and sin is a disease that has haunted our human souls ever since Adam and Eve made their decision. And so he says, through one man, sin and death entered in. Now look here, look at this incredible statement. Verse 18 of chapter five. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, being made right, and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, since we are all in the same boat under the wrath of God because of our sin nature, our sin and death in us, and the law couldn't rescue them and it couldn't rescue us, what do we need? Do we need a fighting Messiah who's gonna overthrow Rome? No, we don't. You thought you needed that, but that's like a child's play. What you need is someone who can undo this what we're stuck with. And Jesus came to do that because just as through Adam, sin came in, through Jesus, sin is undone. And now look what he says. Uh, Chapter six, verse four. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There is the beautiful uh, finalized reasoning. Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer death and sin. And you don't need a fighting Messiah who's fighting what's right in front of him to do that. You need a suffering Messiah who's fighting the big environment visible things that we could never fight. And then he, in chapter eight, verse one says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See what Paul was reasoning with these folks is this, you thought, we thought, that we needed a Messiah who would conquer a nation in front of us, a fighting Messiah, but we needed a Messiah who would conquer sin and death in us, a suffering, dying, raising from the dead Messiah. The Messiah you thought you needed is a small Messiah, but the Messiah you actually got is a giant Messiah. This is what he's saying to the synagogue. And what is the response? When Paul has done reasoning for three weeks with these folks about why Jesus had to suffer, die, and rise from the dead, let's take a look. Go back to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, page 602, a few pages back, this is the result of Paul's great reasoning in that synagogue. Chapter 17, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But... 
The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they could not find them, that's Paul, Silas, Luke and Timothy, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason has received them and, we are, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying, that there is another king, Jesus. So they are once again uh, telling them that Jason and the teams are living a life of sedition against Rome. You don't do that in Roman territory. What is one of the results of this great reasoning of the gospel? Well, it ends up creating offense to a number of the Jewish leadership in the synagogue, and that offense produces hostility, and that hostility is acted upon against those preaching the gospel. Folks, listen to me. You'll see it throughout the book of Acts and onward. Every time the gospel is carried into an environment, one of the results is going to be people that are offended turn hostile and fight those carrying the gospel. Why? Because the first encounter you have with the gospel, the first encounter I have with the gospel is where the gospel confronts the life I'm trying to build for myself. And what do we humans do all the time? We immediately fight what's right in front of us. Anything standing in the way of what we dream, we want, we desire, we fight that. And so your first reaction often to the gospel is an, an, a reaction of hostility. And so do not be surprised if you're going to live on mission carrying the gospel that when you bring the gospel to bear on the people's lives around you, it's not always going to be warm and fuzzy. It is often going to produce uh, an offense which will produce hostility toward the messenger of the gospel because they are hostile toward the God of the gospel because he is asking them for more than they're willing to give. And just so we're clear, before we start jumping like the Jewish people and judging them out there, yeah, I carried the gospel once and someone persecuted me. You're right, Renault. Amen. Let me tell you something else, a little secret. Anytime the gospel confronts something in you and I that we're trying to hold on to, if we do not drop that, we will slowly move toward offense, frustration, and hostility toward God. Is there that thing you really want, that job you're in that you want to get out of? God hasn't moved you, has he? Psh, it's been like a month. Seriously, what's his problem? Maybe a year, maybe five. God help us. Are you in that relationship with that person God gave you, soulmate? Not so much soulmate anymore, are they? <laughs> Turns out that way, isn't that funny? And now suddenly you're like, why me? Why do I have to bear this cross of that insane human being? Did he give you a bunch of kids that were supposed to uh, produce significance and wonder in you and the kids turned out to be misbehaving little monsters? <laughs> funny how that works, isn't it? And now you're like, oh God, I can't bear it. Are there things you dream about that it just seems like God's not producing well in your life? And so you've been begging and pleading, but God's not responding. What happens in us? Do you feel it? We start becoming frustrated with God at first. Oh, God. I, you know, then we convince ourselves he's trying to teach us a lesson. So as soon as we learn it, then he'll give us what we want. And then when he doesn't do that, then there's a hostility in us toward God. See, all of us in our humanity deal with this reality that when the gospel confronts us and our stuff and asks us, hey, trust God's story, not your own, our first response is a little hostility toward God. We all live there. Whenever you feel frustrated with God, hostile, angry, because you don't have what you deserve, can I just challenge you as I am challenged? I guarantee you, somewhere you're living for something that you think you deserve. Because anytime we live exclusively for the redemptive purposes of God, we're never hostile toward God because we can't be, because we're living for his kingdom and his purposes. We are only hostile toward God when he's asking us to lay down something that we think we deserve. 
or live in something that's hard for us when we're supposed to have it easy. And those are our greatest spaces of opportunity to lay down that which haunts us, our idols, and see God bring peace because we let the gospel do what it's supposed to do. There's another response here too, isn't there? Jason, you notice Jason? Interesting character, right? He's apparently fairly brand new to the story because he was in Thessalonica when they got there, so he didn't know Jesus when they arrived. Within the first week or two, he's invited them to stay at their house, right? You see that? And Jason and a number of the brothers have come to Christ and they're in the house with Paul. When things go badly after week three and the guys come and stir up a mob and come to Jason's house, does Jason go like this? Hold, hold, we didn't have any idea these people were seditious and crazy. Here's Paul, here's Silas, here's Luke. Luke and Timothy, Timothy, some friends are here to see you. No, you don't see that, do you? In fact, what probably happened is Jason and the boys said, guys, you need to go hide or just get out of the house for a while. We'll take this on. We know the guys in the city. Well, it got a little ugly, didn't it? They dragged Jason and his friends out of the house to the magistrate in the, in the city court where, where Paul and them certainly would have been beaten again. But what does Jason do? Does he, does he immediately fold and say, oh, the, the guys are in the back? No. It says they were, they were called into sedition. They could have been put in prison and beaten. Thankfully, they were just fined this time, but they were told, don't do it again. Jason doesn't budge. See, this is a pattern we see in the scriptures. Every time a bunch of people in scripture are awakened by the magnitude of the gospel good news, that Jesus didn't come save us from something right in front of us. He came to save us from something deep within us, from sin and death. When that actually becomes real to a human being, when they go, oh my goodness, It's not about Rome, it's about my soul. Something changes in that human being and suddenly what used to matter, what they were so adamant at God about to fix, stops mattering. Doesn't matter that I'm under Roman occupation. What does it matter? I can live free of that. Because my freedom isn't about Rome being overthrown, my freedom is about me realizing I've been rescued. And you see these uncommon, fearless, Ah, wondrous lives being lived out. Lydia just threw her business on the ground and said, Jesus, do whatever you want. The jailer threw his reputation as a Roman soldier on the ground. Paul, who was trying to be the Pharisee of Pharisees, threw that away for the gospel. And now Jason goes, if you need to arrest me, that's fine. I'm not telling you where Paul is. Because you see, it no longer matters, the Roman government. What matters is my soul has been rescued and I just saw that this week and that's mind-blowing. So what Paul is doing here is that he's saying after we have reasoned that Christ needed to be a suffering, dying, raising from the dead Messiah to rescue what was much deeper in us than we thought, much bigger in us than what was right in front of us, then he's saying this, when we grasp the magnitude of that gospel, it produces in us lives that turn into fearless, daring, uncommon lives that then turn the world upside down. We love when we should hate. We serve when we should take. We submit when we should take authority. We rest when we should fight. We're sensitive to what is most important to the kingdom of God instead of most important to us. No wonder Paul in Romans, in chapter 12, we didn't get there, but that's kind of where he goes next. In chapter 12, verse one, he says this. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, in view of of God's mercy, which is Romans 1 through 12, right? Everything we traveled through. In view of this gospel, this Messiah, this rescuer of your soul, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your worship. 
You don't worship by singing in a church with a bunch of other people. That's an expression of worship. You worship by saying, God, not my story, but yours. This is the Jackie Robinson speech. This is our great uh, uh, manager coming to us, Paul, in the power of the Holy Spirit saying, folks, listen up. Stop fighting for what you deserve. Stop fighting for what you want. We're saying, are you saying we've got to be weak and stand by and have people walk all over us? No. I'm saying fight for something bigger. Fight for others. Jackie Robinson had to fight for all the people he represented, and we get to fight for the one we represent, Jesus Christ, as ambassadors of Christ. And so when we walk into a scenario and we would normally fight what's right in front of us, beg God to remove the obstacle in front of us, or be mad at the person in front of us who's hurt us, or is taking from us, or, or betrayed us, or did something to us, the Spirit of God whispers to us and says, don't, 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 don't fight here for yourself. Fight for redemption. Fight for the kingdom of God, which means you respond very differently. Fight for loving this person instead of hating them. Why? Because they deserve it. Psh, nobody deserves anything on this planet. No, because the kingdom of God is at hand and the Savior that rescued your soul deserves it. You fight for him, you don't fight for yourself. This is our invitation. There was a story, I don't know if it's true for sure, I haven't actually researched it and I usually do, so I apologize if it's not true, but it's still a great story, okay? So it's not a bad not true story, you'll see. Uh, we are told that D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist of times past, was speaking in a chapel at one point in the Moody Institute, which was the school that uh, he launched. And uh, he was talking to the student body there, and there was uh, these, this big bowl of apples in the cafeteria. And so what would happen is the students would get lunches and stuff, and then you'd walk by the bowl of apples and take an apple. And D.L. Moody said, is, it said, he said in the chapel, if we here in this school training to be evangelists would live out the gospel, the last apple in the bowl would be the best apple in the bowl. Because you know what the last apple in the bowl looks like, right? <laughs> it's not pretty. You don't eat an apple that day. But you see, he said, what would happen is every person would get to the bowl, they would look for the wor next worst apple, and they would take it knowing that no one behind them should take that apple. And then by the time you're done, the very best apple should be in the bowl for the last person to take. Man, uh, today, uh, again, I was pulling up to pick up all the kids in my neighborhood that I bring in the, in the grand big bus, the black sprinter, and, and in, in my world, all my children and all their friends fight for one thing, and that is shotgun, front seat, right? And then the next best seats as it progressively moves backwards in the car. And so they sprint now to the car. They're all sprinting. And today, they all sprinted to the car and jumped in, and the D.L. Moody story was in my head, and so I'm driving here, and I'm like, hey, guys, can I share something with you? And I'm like, yeah, and I said, you know, and I told them D.L. Moody story, and I said, what if, what if, what if all of us ran as fast as we could to the car and we got to the front door and we guarded it for the one that was usually the slowest who could never get it? And when they got there, we said, you, you take the front seat. And when I looked back in the back of the car, the car filled out from the back to the front because every person that got there first went and found the worst seat in the car, sat down and said, nobody else has to take the seat. Thank goodness I get to serve them. And all the, all the kids in the car are like, huh. I don't know if it was good or bad, but it was huh, right? <laughs> This is the life we're invited into. This is the life that is born when we get a dramatic gospel view. So if you want to live a fearless, daring life of uncommon love, serving those around you for the sake of Christ, then you and I need to dig more deeply into the magnitude 
of the great rescue that our Savior produced for us. Understanding that he did not come to rescue us from the little things in front of us that we are so obsessed about, but that he came to rescue us from a deep, dark reality in us. And when he set us free from that, Rome doesn't matter anymore because we get to live free for the kingdom of God and the redemption of Jesus Christ. Welcome to following Jesus. Let's pray. God, would you stir in us what is necessary so that we might see clearly the magnitude of the gospel so that we might live our lives uncommonly for the sake of others, even when that costs us all that we deserve. May we run in our lives to get in the front of the line so that we would take on the worst so that no one else has to. May we love when we should hate. May we serve when we should be served. May we give when we should take. May we turn the world upside down because we're living for your kingdom and your redemptive story fighting for that instead of fighting for ourselves. Make us that courageous, that strong, that uncommon Spirit of God by fixing our eyes on Jesus, our rescuer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.